You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. John Harper, Vice President of Clinical Sciences at LifeCell Corporation in New Jersey and Adjunct Professor of Biomedical Science at the University of Texas in Houston. Today we are discussing bioprosthetics. Welcome, Dr. Harper. Thank you, Dr. Hill. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the problems for surgeons are infected plastic meshes or plastic grafts, and one of the bacteria that all scare us are MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. If we have a patient like this and we'd like to use a bioprosthetic, can we do it without fear of getting that bioprosthetic infected? Well, I think you can never be completely free of fear of infection, as you know. Bacteria are really aggressive organisms. The main thing you need to do is to reduce the bioburden in that wound. And once you've done so, if you can get it down to a clean, contaminated level of bacteria, then a bioprosthetic can be used because as bacteria are present, our white blood cells can work with those bacteria and kill them because the white blood cells can migrate into the bioprosthesis. Some of the the earliest biopsies I've looked at in animals have shown me that the first cells that make it into a bioprosthetic are white blood cells. They come in within days. So if there are bacteria present, those white cells can become activated and kill the bacteria. So we know that if there is infection around, certainly more plastic can't be put. In fact, I think some surgeons wait a year before they will go back and repair a hernia if there has been a previous infected mesh removed. That's because you can think the clinical infection is gone, but once you put a foreign body back in the patient, those bacteria can go places and thrive, and you can develop a secondary infection. That doesn't seem to be the case with bioprostheses. So clearly, the fact that the cells integrate into the bioprosthetic and chemotaxis still exists would be a great advantage in terms of having blood supply and antibiotics get to the specimen as well. Absolutely. And I think that it can't be overstressed that because bacteria are so invasive, that if you don't get the bioburden down low enough and you put a bioprosthetic material in place, those bacteria can eat up the bioprosthetic just like it can the patient's own tissue. So the, the key is getting the bioburden down. If you've gotten the bioburden down low enough, then a bioprosthetic can become integrated, restore physiology, and you can therefore treat the patient with antibiotics or the patient's own immune system can go at the bacteria. What are the clinical applications of bioprosthetics? Bioprosthetics, interestingly enough, uh, are used very, very widely by surgeons. And uh, we have found that that's when surgeons understand how bioprosthetic materials work, they can come up with all kinds of ways of using these materials as a tool in the operating room when they need more tissue and they don't have tissue from the patient. Such as? Such as abdominal wall repair uh, is one of the very large areas that uh, bioprosthetic materials are used. Plastic surgeons are now changing the way they do uh, breast reconstruction after mastectomy. In cases of uh, reconstructing the breast after mastectomy, plastic surgeons will place tissue expanders under the pectoralis muscle. And in order to get full tissue coverage uh, over that implant, in previous times, they would mobilize the serratus muscle and, and suture it to the inferior margin of the pec muscle to get coverage of that implant. Because if the skin breaks down, they don't want to be looking at the implant. Well, with the bioprosthetics today, surgeons have been able to use the bioprosthetic to bridge the gap between 
that pec muscle down to the chest wall and really eliminate the repositioning of that serratus muscle. And by doing that, they really lower the morbidity of the uh, operation to the patient uh, as well as shorten the operation. And then obviously, most importantly, they get the best clinical outcome. So I think that's a clear case where you've really improved the operation with bioprosthetic materials. And that's another area where integration is critical. If you put a bioprosthetic material that doesn't integrate or that scars in the breast immediately under the, the skin of the breast, you'll get less than an optimal reaction. And what about large traumatic open wounds? Large traumatic open abdomens are something that, that trauma surgeons see that keep them awake at night. It's a problem that is just very, very difficult to solve. It keeps people in the hospital for very long periods of time. Bioprosthetics are allowing surgeons to close those abdomens earlier, get the patients out of the hospital sooner, and uh, even if they have to reoperate on them to revise that abdomen, it's a much easier operation than a true hernia repair. So I think that's another one that's really helping folks get out of the hospital, reducing the cost of medical care, and so on. But if you go on, uh, surgeons have been using bioprosthetic materials for pelvic floor repair for many years. They use them in the mouth for uh, regenerating lost buccal mucosa and other uh, gingival tissue. Uh, orthopedic surgeons and sports medicine uh, surgeons use it for uh, augmenting rotator cuff repair. And we're now also seeing it used uh, as a graft in the cases of chronic wounds. If you debreed the wound, get rid of the bacteria, and you put a bioprosthetic in that deficit, uh, we think you set up a, a more of a regenerative response. And what you get in that wound is more like skin, what was lost, than scarring. If you've just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and I am speaking with Dr. John Harper, and we are discussing bioprosthetics. Dr. Harper, how long have bioprosthetics really been used, let's say, in the United States? Well, I would say the first bioprosthetics that were introduced were introduced back in the early 90s. This was when we developed the acellular human dermis to replace dermis that burn patients lost. We saw this medical need, which is where you have the third-degree burn. That burn tissue has to be resected. The patient is left to either take a very, very thick skin graft or to scar in, and the, the consequences of that can mean repeated operations. So we developed this back in the early, early 90s as a, as a dermal replacement. Bioprosthetics have been used more broadly in the operating room, probably starting about six years ago. Plastic surgeons who were using it for burns began using it for other reconstructive procedures. General surgeons have been using it now for about five years, six years also in the abdomen. Now we're seeing it used around the diaphragm in cases of paraesophageal hernias. Uh, other areas that, that uh, we talked about contamination earlier with MRSA. Any other operation that we suspect will be contaminated, like a peristomal hernia, bioprosthetics are very useful there because of their resistance to infection. And how common is it being used as compared to plastic prosthetics? Well, I think across the country, I think it's still a very small proportion of surgeons that are using it because surgeons are just beginning to appreciate the benefits of regeneration as opposed to the scarring. I think that uh, most surgeons are trained to use plastics. As you know, I'm very involved in the education of surgeons across the country in the use of bioprosthetic materials. We talk about how to use them. We talk about the science behind them. I think it's so important when surgeons use a new tool, especially something that's complicated like a bioprosthetic, that they understand the science behind it because this helps them treat complications. It helps them understand the proper patients to put it in. Bioprosthetic materials 
really operate by very distinct mechanisms of action. And much like pharmaceuticals, uh, which have very delineated mechanisms, bioprosthetics have really never been thought of in terms of mechanism. We're looking at the possibility of identifying certain mechanisms, one being regeneration, one being scarring, and that is when the biomaterial or bioprosthetic is damaged and really stimulates a, a repair response like we're normally our normal healing response, which results in scar formation. And then finally, if it's treated to make it inert, we see a third mechanism as being one of encapsulation, very much like a plastic uh, type of scaffold. And the consequences obviously are uh, potentials for extrusion, risk of long-term infection. So right now, in the, from the research standpoint, uh, we're trying to understand these mechanisms and trying to teach surgeons the differences between these biologicals, how to, how to assess them and how to evaluate when to use them and how to use them. Are the insurance companies covering them? At this point, uh, the insurance companies are not covering them. They're covered as part of the uh, operating room charge. But as the more data is developed, we're obviously doing studies to develop data to help show the insurance companies uh, how the length of stay is, is reduced and other benefits uh, to health care. So we hope that, that someday very soon that, uh, that the insurance companies will pay for these uh, bioprostheses. If you had a crystal ball, Dr. Harper... Where's the future in bioprosthetics, and what's over the horizon? Well, I think that we understand what the goal is today, and that is to try to recapitulate uh, regeneration in the operating room. I think cost is a big issue today. I think if there's ways that we can reduce the cost of bioprosthetics, I think they'll be more widely used. This obviously involves developing new technology. Uh, Today we use human tissue. I think in the future... Uh, We might develop ways of applying this technology to animal tissues that be made more uniform, potentially at at lower costs. Uh, I think way off in the crystal ball, way off in the future, I think that more we learn about the requirements for regeneration, the more we'll be able to engineer those things. And so if we can uh, engineer a tissue, uh, the proper components of the tissue, so that we can manufacture it like you do other things, we can get the cost down and we can execute the same goal. I think we're a ways away from that because the matrix of tissue is very, very complex. The whole basis for the advantage of bioprosthetics is utilizing the regenerative process versus a foreign body encapsulation process. Why did it take us so long to come to that conclusion? Well, I think a lot of that is uh, developing the right animal models to understand this. When you look at synthetic materials, you can use rats and guinea pigs and rabbits and what have you. I think biologics introduce a new challenge because there's an immunological property there that we have to deal with. We talked earlier about the fact that the matrix is highly conserved across species, but the very the minute part, the part that's not uh, conserved does cause a chronic smoldering inflammatory response. So if we're doing an experiment trying to mimic what happens in patients uh, in a lower rodent, for example, we can look at events that happen in the first four to six weeks, but after that the model breaks down. So What we've been doing now is trying to look at at higher organisms that have immune systems similar to ours, like non-human primates, for example. And I think it's through that work that we've been able to see the regenerative process going on. And we we know what we're trying to do in patients. It's just a matter of how is the best way to get there. So at this point in time, from a biological perspective, using a non-human source is different than using a human source for the structural matrix. Yes. Most of the non-human source products that are out there today uh, are cross-linked to make them last longer. 
Uh, because as I said before, if you damage these things during the processing, the body will see them as being different and then will break them down and replace them with scar tissue. What we're trying to do today is to prepare that scalpel from animal tissues, but doing it in such a careful way that we trick the body into thinking that it is human. And then the body will integrate it and incorporate it in a very normal fashion. We think we're getting there. And we're, you know, we're pretty optimistic, but it requires stringing together a lot of technology like sterilization, removing the immune uh, response and so forth. So it's, it's taken us some time to get there, but I think we're almost there. I want to thank Dr. John Harper, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing bioprosthetics. I am Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, your host, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.